Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 20 Questions podcast. You know, I've been lucky enough to talk a number of very well-known names into answering our 20 questions. Always the same, and also asking them to pick five music tracks they like. On this edition, I got to speak to the music business legend Sir Cliff Richard. So many hits, none of which we can play on a podcast, sadly. But his answers to the 20 questions are really quite enlightening. As always, our first question is, what is your name? Do you know, I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Cliff Richard. Sir Cliff Richard. Well, my name is Cliff Richard, but the title was Sir, yeah. That must have been a great honour. It was. It was fantastic. People say, what's the best thing that ever happened to you? And of course, I'm tempted to say young ones, summer holiday, bachelor boy, we don't talk anymore. But in point of fact, in terms of a personal achievement, because it was so off the wall. It wasn't in my radar. You know, if you make a record, you think it could be gold, you know, may not, but it could be. Uh, It never crossed my mind that I might be invited to be a knight. So it was a big thrill and I enjoyed it. I still enjoy being a knight. It's fabulous. And to be the first one as well. Yes. I mean, in in terms of if Bob Geldof had been English, he'd have been the first. But he he just got an honorary. (laughs) (laughs) Yours is a real one. Yes. And, of course, Cliff Richard is your stage name originally, but I don't suppose you think of yourself as as your uh, original name at all, maybe. No, I don't, and even my sisters, my family, certainly don't think of me as Harry Webb. That's my name, and so uh, it's strange, because I came home one night and said, look, I've changed my name, and they said, what is it? I said, Cliff Richard. They said, okay, Cliff. And the only one that used to make a mistake was my sister Joan, who was 10 years younger. So when, at, at 17, when I changed my name, she was only seven. And she'd often say, Harry, oh, sorry. <laughs> and how did you come up with the name? Well, as a combination, the last combination of names were, somebody said, Russ Clifford. And I thought, oh, no, that doesn't sound right to me. Sorry, if anybody's here called Russ Clifford, it's nothing, it's nothing personal, but it didn't sound like a rock star. Then they said, what about Cliff Russard? I went, oh, Cliff, rock face, rock and roll, that sounds good. Somebody else suggested Richards with an S, and the guy that wrote Move It, Ian Samuel, said, why don't you take the S off, then it's a tribute to Little Richard, and you've got two Christian names, Cliff and Richard. So I thought, that's interesting, I'll be doing that. So it stuck. It worked. 
It certainly worked, yeah. Here's question number two on 20 Questions with Cliff Richard. Um, what do you do? Obvious question. What do you do? I... I tried to do a bit of everything, really. I, obviously, I started off my career as a singer. Um, nothing I've ever done has been trained. Uh, I, my parents couldn't afford to send me for piano or guitar lessons. My dad bought me a guitar and taught me two or three chords. Um, even singing was just by listening to Elvis and the others that came through after him and with him. And even when I first did my first movie, they asked me, can you dance? I went, ugh. And I, what I did, I was joined the dancers every morning at their warm-up class. Fortunately, I could move a bit, so I faked everything. My whole career has been one big, long fake. <laughs> I don't think so. But there's, there is. The, there's the, the playing, there's the singing, there's the dancing, there's the acting. So you've got to do yeah. it, haven't you, really? Yeah, yeah some of us uh, get lucky like that. You know, I mean, without having... Because I had the desire to be in this business, I guess it maybe something was burning in there. I sometimes wish that my parents had been better off and would have sent me like a... Uh, an acting school. If you look at some of the people, I go and see shows now in the West End or in Broadway, the people are so multi-gifted. Now, maybe I could have been one of them had I been born 20 years later, but it, I wasn't. So I, I've, I came to terms with the fact that I just made the best of what I, what I had, and it worked. It worked. I'll, I'll never be a great dancer, but I can move. Uh, singing has got. I think I'm not bad at singing now. I've improved quite a lot over the years. Come my, on. Well, no, I remember my dad saying to me when I first got started. He said, "Why can't you sing a bit more like Jerry Lee Lewis and Marty Wild?" And I said, "Well," oh. and in fact, when I look back and listen, I, I lacked confidence. So my voice was okay. It was pleasant to listen to, probably, but it, it didn't have any guts to it. It's only after I'd made a couple of hits that you get the confidence to try and give out a bit more and then I started getting cheeky and doing falsettos and stuff so my dad unfortunately died too young and therefore missed the best parts of my career now he I think now he'd say oh yeah now you've got it Cliff his question number three where did you grow up well I was born in India and by the time I had my eighth birthday in England so my only memory of childhood times is, is actually in India. And the strange thing was that even though my parents had been born, I was second generation of Brits born out in India, my parents still always talked about going home to Blighty. I have no idea why England was known as Blighty. Probably a wartime thing, I don't know. I still don't know what Blighty no, I'm means. Sure either, yeah. But we were always coming back to England. And we'd none of us ever been here. But I got, we got back here after India got home rule in 1947 or 48. We then got home to England. Yeah, I'm saying it now. We came back to back. I can't help but say it. We came to England in 1948, September, and I was eight in October. So uh, ever since then, of course, I've, I've lived in England. Yeah. And, um, and what were your parents doing out in India? In my days? father's father was a British engineer. And it was during the time, you know, the, the, the Raj, the, the, the empire was, the, you know, the whole planet was covered pink and uh, pretty well belonged to England. Isn't it amazing to think yes. this little tiny country could do that? Anyway, my, my grandparents went out. My father's father went out because he was an engineer, wanted to make some money out there. And my mother's father was in the army. And went out there. So therefore, they had their children, my mum and dad. They met, 
married, they had us, and then it was our generation that actually brought them all back here. And do you remember your times, uh, one, zero to eight in India? Zero, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't even remember one, but I can remember being living in Calcutta. I was born in a place called Lucknow, north of Calcutta, and then my father, because he worked for the uh, catering company that had the concession to the railways, which was a great way. You know, people used to go to the railway station to have meals, proper meals, go all dressed up to have a dinner at the railway station. So he had a, he was working for this company and they sent him all around the place. He was like a general manager. So he got sent to Calcutta and we lived just outside in a place called Howrah. And I can remember flying kites on the roof of our apartment with my dad. Fantastic. So I remember all of that. It was all very great, exciting great. times. Yeah. And siblings? Were, were you Two were sisters they, two yeah. sisters were born out in India. The youngest, Joan, uh, was born in England after we'd got back here. Right. And what do they do these days? Oh, they've all done different things, but they're all... Um, two are married. One was married um, and now lives in Portugal. So I see her when I'm in Portugal and sometimes in England. Uh, in fact, I see her more than I ever saw her since she moved to Portugal. Because mm. uh, you've, you've got a, a vineyard there, haven't you? I have, yeah. It's interesting. Um, it never was a planned thing. I, I bought this house and it had a farm around it. So, And a farmer was already looking after it. So I said, well, could you look it after for me? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, what can I plant that we could sell? And he said, well, gr uh, figs. I can sell figs to the north of Portugal where they don't grow that well. And I can sell them to Spain. And I went, oh, okay. And I thought that would pay for the electricity, you know. Planted five acres. I met a winemaker who came down and said, well, this is perfect place for grapes. I said, yeah, but the Algarve is not known for, for wine. In fact, the, the World Book of Wine says that the Algarve has, at that stage it said, four cooperatives and they basically bottle headaches for tourists. <laughs> and I said, look, why would I want to do that? He said, because they don't know how to do it, but they're not stupid. They'll learn and you can be the first. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. I planted 16 acres under vines. And now there are, th there are thousands of acres yeah. under vines. Uh, although I'm working, making a good wine, I'm not the only one. There's others making good wine now in the Algarve. So do not just shun them because it comes from the Algarve. We've only just getting the name for it. You know, my wine won, for instance, last year gold medals in Munich for the rosé, a gold medal in Berlin for the white. Uh, we've got gold medals in Portugal for best red. So we're making a very nice wine. In fact, funnily enough, but I don't eat, I don't drink anybody else's wine anymore. No. Certainly not in Portugal and certainly not in Barbados. And you've become a tourist attraction in the Algarve anyway. People come to see your vineyard, don't they? Well, I suppose they do, yeah. The tourism board, they, they actually quite liked it yeah. because it gave them somewhere else to send people. And your fans go there. A lot of Brits go to, to Portugal. So fans come around. I see the, the little bus or van come around and they all get out and take pictures. In fact, they kept taking pictures, so I thought, i better put up a nice gate because although I have a nice gate leading to the house, leading into the vineyard, it was just a broken down old thing. Yeah. Anyway, I put up a really nice game of Vida Nova written on it and suddenly they've got something to photograph. Great, great. It's a lovely part of the world there, isn't it? It's a fabulous you part spend, of the world. Do you spend much time there? I spend the summers there. I go mm. for the winters to Barbados and I go to Portugal for the summers. It's one of the reasons why I technically don't reside here in Britain anymore. I've started saying to people, I'm getting a bit like Scylla Black. She always says things like, I don't do supermarkets, darling. I say, I don't do winter, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right, too. Yes. So, Cliff, we're going to have some music now. So, what's this one going to be? Well, Devil Woman, to me, if, if a Martian came down off Mars and said, and we all had to tell them, what, what, what do you do? And it came to my turn. I would say to him, listen to this. And I have him listen to it and say, that's what I do. To me, it's just a classic pop rock song. 
Here's question number four for Cliff Richard. What is your most treasured possession? Oh, well, I suppose I own my houses, so my post, I think my most treasured possession would be my house in Portugal. Really? There's something about, I don't know what it is, Portugal for a lot of people is a big buzzy time to go and have a holiday, you know, lots of bars and restaurants, beaches and stuff. I tend to go there and I find it's the most wonderful place for me to recharge batteries. It's not like Barbados. Barbados is a social world for me. I love it. I like it there. I made lots of great friends, made very few friends in Portugal. Maybe that's why I stay at home so much. I don't go to the beach. I, I don't like getting grit all over the place. So I, I stay at home, sit by the pool, usually with a headset on, maybe learning songs for the next tour or something coming up. And I find it's a wonderful place just to relax and recharge batteries. So if that's not cheating, that's I'd a, that's say fine, that's, that's one fine. of the, Or is, uh, is there any little bit of memorabilia you may have picked up over the year? For instance, are you superstitious at all? No, I'm not yeah, superstitious, actually. No, I don't, I'm not one of those people. Your wallet or something like no, that, I don't so. carry anything like that. I don't do anything special before I go on stage, the only thing that's not superstition, but the only thing that I definitely do do is leave myself at least 20 minutes uh, before a show so that I can just do a, I do gentle warm-up for my throat. That's not superstition, though. No. That's just because I feel I need to do that, you know. It's professionalism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's number five now, and it's a very difficult question, because I'm sure there are quite a few, but what was the happiest day of your life? Well, that is a difficult one. I can remember, I've got lots of happy spikes in my life. You know, when you think about, that was good, that was good. Um, I would say when I first had uh, Move It come into the charts. Yeah. And, 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 of course, that, that, it peaked at two. And I remember being at the, Le the Leicester de Montfort Hall and performing there that night. And that night I heard it went to number two. And we were on stage and the crowd all knew and it was fantastic. That was a big spike for me because that was like only, uh, only a year before I was still in school. Well, a year and a half before I was still in school. So for me to actually then be working in – and I was working with the Kalen twins and Eddie Calvert and a whole bunch of people at that time, that period. And there I was, nothing on the bill. I wasn't – I was nothing on the bill. Um, and the record went to number two. So that was a real big spike. And then again, I can think of The Young Ones, released on Friday, number one by Monday, which means only Friday and Saturday sales. It sold enough to get to number one, sold a million. Uh, and those days you were really selling a lot, weren't you? I mean, yeah. That, people say, what's the difference between then and now? And, and that's the major difference, you know. Nowadays, you can be number one in Britain and sell thirty-five or 40,000 copies of something or downloads of something in a week. When we were selling our million sellers, we were selling up to 80,000 a day. And on those weekends would be 120,000 a day. It was a fantastically productive time. And uh, I guess that's not likely to happen again, although things are cyclical, aren't they? Yes. yes. It is possible, and I hope it's true, that for the sake of the new young singers coming up, who, when you think about it, even the losers on X Factors are good. I mean, they're really good singers these days. There's no reason why they can't all be selling millions of records. Because when we were there, we were not. The Shadows and I were not the only ones selling millions. Elvis was. Little Richard was. Buddy Holly was. Elton was. The but Beatles were. But I challenge were. you on the X Factor people in so, in, insofar as the longevity that they'll have. They I, are not going to go to 100 I'm not albums, saying, are they? I'm not saying that they'll have longevity. I don't know. I'm just saying that they're all good singers. I, it's it, The losers to me, when you think of the One Direction band, five of them, they all lost. Mm. 
the none of them won X Factor, and they're the biggest band, boy band in the world at the moment. I don't know whether they'll still be here. That's another change that's happened. I don't think the new groups and young young singers have the same support system. Mm-hmm. I don't think there was a system as such, but it was there because your producer loved you, not just you, as a singer. You're but you're bound to grow and develop, aren't you, over time? Yeah, and you need nurturing. You need helping through all of that. And we were helped by Norrie Paramo, who was the record producer, Peter Gormley, who was our manager. Uh, there were all sorts of people that, anyway, Molly coddled us to a certain extent. But for instance, Move It went to number two. My second record was seven. The third one was nine. Fourth one was 17. There was a downward trend. Ooh. But they said, don't panic. Today, <laughs> number one, you can have a number one. If your next record's not number one, sometimes they weren't re-signed. Yeah. It's because they don't, they don't have the same faith in the artists that Norrie and Peter Gormley had. And they had faith in us. They believed in us as artists and thought the best is yet to come. And sure enough, they said... We'll find you the right song. The fifth one, Living Doll, number one. Sixth one, Traveling Light, number one. Then you had a few downs again, and then number one, Summer Holiday, Bachelor Boy. Uh, the next time, we don't talk anymore. And it goes on and on. So here we are a few years later, the 100th album. My goodness. And in the top ten. I mean, I can't believe it. I cannot believe how this could happen to me. You know, I, can, I look back and think, oh, you know, I, I didn't have all those lessons and classes and stuff. I had nothing to, to fall back on. It was all learnt as I went along. And uh, I would never have dreamed that 55 years after releasing Move It, I would be in the charts. I mean, this is ludicrous. The DVD is number two <laughs> in the musical DVDs and the, the album's top 10. So uh, it's been a, an astounding time for me. And, and if people don't understand why, join the, join the queue. I'm the head of the queue. I have no idea why. Time for some more music now. Cliff, what are we going to have next? Well, the biggest selling single I've ever had, and this might surprise somebody because if you stop someone in the street and say, what's Cliff Richard's biggest hit, they're very likely to pick Living Doll, Summer Holiday, Bachelor Boy. Now, look, they were big. They were all million sellers. But the biggest selling record I ever had was written for me by Alan Tarney, produced by Bruce Welsh, and it was called We Don't Talk Anymore. It's 20 Questions with Cliff Richard, and here's question number six. Cliff, what are you scared of? Anything you're scared of? Oh, lots of things. I would never try to uh, climb Mount Everest. I'm just afraid of dying in an unnatural situation. I, I don't even go in the sea because they say, well, there's no, no, there's not been any sharks here for 10 years. I'm thinking... Oh, the you do one, it's not going to be me. Thank you very much. So I don't go. I'm a real coward when it comes to things like that. So, and, you know, no one wants to get run down by a bus. All those, the idea of that happening to me frightens me a bit. But, you know, there are no guarantees. I could die of something else. You know, I could be terribly sick tomorrow. But so far, God has blessed me with good health. I've had good health. I've had, because of my touring, I have to have uh, an insurance. Because of insurance, I go to my doctors, they're like bloodsuckers. You know, they're like Draculas. They take so much blood to test me on everything. And everything so far has come out clean. Well, you are an incredible Nick. How do you do it? I, I try to eat. I've always dieted. But recently, in the last seven or eight years, I started uh, a process of eating food that's right for my blood type. You have to believe that it's right for a start. When I spoke to my doctor about it, she went, mm. and she said, well, what do you eat? I went, well, I, I can eat pasta. And she went, oh. I said, I'm allowed rice. Oh. 
She said, what about protein? I said, well, I can eat chicken, turkey, fish. She said, look, I don't care what you do as long as you get enough of those things, it's fine. So I follow this, this, uh, this regime, and I don't eat shellfish. I don't eat any red meat. Um, there were certain things like potatoes, and there's a couple of disappointment things. I couldn't eat um, bananas, mangoes, and papayas. They're the only fruit I used to eat. Oh. They're the only because I loved them. They were exotic fruit. I've given them up. I eat other fruit now. Uh, I couldn't eat potatoes, so I I just stay off them. And do you know what? Once you count up, there were ten no-nos for me. Once you take up those ten no-nos, there are thousands of other things you can eat. It's amazing when you actually put it down to it. Because usually people see to me, oh, I love a steak. And I go, so do I. And do you know what I do? Every three or four weeks, I darn well have a steak. There's no, it's not offensive to your body to have something you shouldn't have. You just shouldn't have it too often. Well, that's good. You're, you look incredibly well, I have to say. Thank you. Number seven, and yep. you've mentioned quite a few names already. But who, and I, I'm going to guess I know the answer to this one. Who was your hero? Oh, well, you know, Elvis was the person that kind of changed my life. You know? say that, yeah. When I heard that record, when I heard Heartbreak Hotel from this car window that was down and the guy was stopped to get a newspaper or something, we were all looking at the car. It was a Citroen. You remember the Citroen when it used to look like a spacecraft, a big yeah. curved thing right to the back? And we're all thinking, oh, we want one of these one day. And then suddenly this record came on. We only heard like, since my baby left, doo-doo, I've found a new place to dwell, dang, dang. The car had gone. The guy had come back. And so then we were going, oh, no, what was that? What was that? It felt like to me listening to somebody that come in from out of space. It was so different to the Sinatras and the Bing Crosbys. I mean, great singers that were out that time, but so different. And then a friend of mine came around a couple of days later and said, we we used to listen to uh, the British Forces Network from Germany. And he said, I heard it. And it's a bloke, it's got a funny name, it says Elvis, Elvis Presley, and it's Heartbreak Hotel. And I thought, that's it, and that's the time when I thought, that's what I want to do. But you know, wanting to do something doesn't mean you're going to do it. There were no guarantees in my life that I was going to be a singer. But, you know, Elvis inspired thousands of us, and a few of us got lucky, and I was one of them. Fantastic. Here's a silly question now, number eight. Um, What did you do yesterday? Yesterday I was doing ex- almost exactly as what I'm doing today because I've been here in Britain now for about two and a half weeks, jet lagged, zonked, and uh, never quite got over the jet lag because I didn't get time to get over it. I went straight into promotional work for the new album and the new DVD, and so, and it's really quite necessary these days. It's not as easy to sell things anymore. And so I've just spent the last two and a half weeks talking about everything and anything. You have to make people aware of these things, these because there's so much on offer, isn't there? For everyone? Yeah, and, and it's nice. Thank you for the opportunity again to to talk to another group of people about what I'm doing. And I, I, I I'd like to reiterate that you know not only am I still alive, but I am still doing it. You know, I'm, I'm sure. You know, I we tell knew a, that. We knew that. I know, but I go. I went to, went to France a few years ago, and uh, French took me to a restaurant, and the and the maitre d' made no sign of recognition, and he moved to the, another table and looked after them. Then he came back, and then he said to me, and the, I saw him talking to the other people, and they'd looked over once. And he came and he said, tell me, sir, what, I, and I've told this on stage so often, so if you've heard me say this, forgive me. He said, tell me, sir, what is your name? And I said, uh, uh, mon name is Cliff Richard. He went, no, it's not possible. He must be dead now. 
That's <laughs> <laughs> so unfair. That's why I say to people, I'm not dead, I'm alive, I'm still doing it. <laughs> very much so, very much so. And here's another silly one, number nine. Who was the last person you spoke to on the phone? The last person I spoke to on the phone uh, was uh, last night when I saw the time that I was supposed to be at the TV studios. At, at, I was supposed to be on air at 12.15, and it said previously it said 11.30, and I thought 11.30 was leaving. I thought, I can't possibly get there in 45 minutes. And I phoned Roger Bruce, who's, who's driving me and comes, works from my office, and uh, he told me, no, no, no. I'm picking, picking you up at 10. Good. Here's number 10 now to Cliff Richards, and I know you have, but have you got any awards? I do. Loads. <laughs> I do. I have, I have a lot of awards. You know, I mentioned about a few of us getting lucky. I got really lucky. I mean, I, I can remember my first award was from the New Musical Express, and it was Best Newcomer. So that would have been in 1958. 59, I was voted Best British Singer. And it stayed like that for about 10 years. I, I was voted that. And uh, and there was once when the Beatles came about, in 63, they really became better. I think they released the record in 62. But 63, they really became the Beatles as we know them. And I think everybody forgot about Elvis, and I got Best World Singer. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Was that the event they used to have at the Empire Pool Wembley? Was that yes. the New Music Express The concert it? was on there. That's right. It was fantastic. Oh, yeah, and you got to see all your competitors there. It was a fantastic time. Yeah, yeah. Really wonderful. But And the awards came thick and fast, really. And, and it was good to be alive in those early days because not only was it new for us as the artist, because rock and roll was still in its, in its infancy, it was still new for all the public. And therefore, they shared all that excitement with us. Yeah, fantastic. So I think we'll have another track now. What are we going to have next? Well, I'd like to play something from the new album. Uh, I, I, I called it the Fabulous Rock and Roll Songbook because forever we've, with, uh, we've lived with the title The Great American Songbook, which is all about the 30s, 40s music. And it turns out that no one's ever used my title before, and maybe it'll become the title for this kind of music. But I like doing things like Little Richard's Rip It Up. And the thing about Rip It Up and this version of it is that I gave it a whole new intro and everything. Okay, yes, I, I was heavily in, influenced by Richie Blackmore of Deep Purple because they had that deep, you know, the smoke on the water, bam, 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 bam. I just took the chords and juggled them up a bit, shuffled it and, and stole it, basically. And it doesn't sound like them, but it's definitely that influence. But it gave uh, the Little Richard record just a, a new feel. On this podcast, we don't have the rights to play any of Cliff Richard's music, but we'll be back in a tick with more questions and answers. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Now, we talked about cooking and eating a few moments ago. Here's number 11. What is your signature dish? Do you like to prepare food yourself? I don't. Well, I do like to do it, but I tend not to do it, really. I, 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 I can cook. The thing is, I can cook. Uh, I think the, probably the nicest thing that I do is so simple, it's not true. I like chicken breast. You, take, you, you chop up onions, and you lay them on the bottom of the pan, and you fry them. And I usually use olive oil. And then while the chicken's on it frying, I cover them with onions and olive oil and turn them over. And I sprinkle masses of tarragon, and you and I cook oh, them in the pan good. with a lid on, yeah. on a low heat. And when it's ready to eat, I just I just love tarragon, and the flavour of tarragon, strong tarragon in chicken like that is perfect. And you can have almost any vegetable. You can have those manches too. And the other thing I love is parsnip and leeks. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and they're leeks. easy to do. Yeah, leeks are great. Aren't they? And the other thing, if you like mashes. I don't eat potatoes anymore, but if you like a mash, and again, I've mentioned this to a few people, and they said, oh, we didn't know about that. If you take 50-50 potatoes and cauliflower, and you mash them together, salt and pepper, the funny thing is, they turn into another kind of taste. It's neither cauliflower nor potato. People say, what is that? And I say, it's cauliflower and potato. <laughs> it's really fantastic. fantastic. It's so easy. Oh, I, get, yeah. I could ask you some more, but we, we, we won't. We won't. <laughs> but then, so now we've, uh, we've cooked... Four people, dead or alive, and you can make it five if you want to, who you'd have at your ideal dinner party. Dead or alive. Well, there's two people come straight to mind that I wouldn't want to leave out. That's Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. One alive, one dead. Maggie Thatcher. Uh, I, I, I was fascinated by her. I feel somehow, I know a lot of people. Did you meet her? I did. I did. I met her. And it wasn't so much politics for me. I just felt that she was... You know, one of the first real, since Churchill, it seemed to me, we hadn't had a leader. And, you know, I, I know that we don't like leaders. I mean, I, even I, you think about it, in the old days, they had kings and they had leaders and they had chieftains of the village. Usually they, they succeeded because most of us need someone to lead and you have to be prepared to follow. With Maggie Thatcher, I was so impressed by her because when I went to... Um, the number 10 Downing Street, they had some function on, and there were two women, and here's the other one. I'd like Diana, Princess Diana. But the two women I wanted to meet was Diana and Maggie Thatcher. And that night, unbeknownst to me, she had invited a whole load of people. She wanted luminaries because she was trying to encourage businessmen to support financially the student exchange system where English students would go to Africa, Africa students would come here. So... I was one of the luminaries, and so was Princess Diana. She came in. And as I came, when we first came in, we met, and we talked. I talked with Margaret Thatcher for a couple of minutes. And I, my one big question I wanted to ask was, question time, does that frighten you or do you like it? She said, darling, I love it because they can never catch me out. I know a little bit about everything. Fantastic. And I thought, how fantastic. She was totally fearless. And you'd think that that would be a frightening area, but she loved it. So I was very impressed by that. Now, you mentioned your first two dinner guests were um, Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. Yeah. Faith, obviously, very still very important to you. Yeah, faith, but it's not just faith. It's the fact that the two of them, for me, were the ultimate... Exp- they, they, you could see and you could experience it by seeing them and reading about them. And, and in my case, I met them both. That these were two people committed and dedicated to doing something. And even now, somebody said to me, in spite of what the, the nasty things the press say about Mother Teresa, I thought, nasty things, excuse me, here's a woman that was given to help people die with 
some dignity. And uh, I went to visit, and I saw these men and women who she brought in from the streets, ridden with sores and things. She'd hug them and love them and show them that they could still die with dignity. There's nothing she could do to save them. So I find that amazing, and all done in the name of Jesus. That's what fascinated me. And that meeting with her, I did a recording of, I interviewed her. I'm not a great interviewer, of course, not like you, but I just asked, talked to her. And, you know, when we got in the car, we were almost at the hotel, and we were trying to find, and it wasn't on either side. It was a cassette long before, you know, the technology came through. And I thought, there's nothing on this machine. There's nothing there. So we phoned her immediately when we got to the hotel, and she said, oh, well, something one of us said probably wasn't acceptable to Jesus, so you better come back, we'll do it again. It was as simple as that. Simple faith with great dedication. And Billy was the same. You know, he didn't pretend to be anything other than an evangelist. He said, I'm an evangelist. I feel that I feel drawn to express to people what Jesus means and how he could possibly be something in their lives. And that's it. He said, I have no other power, nothing at all. I can express it. I can tell people. But in the end, it's between them and God. And I found him, you know, he's stainless. You know, all the years that he's been there, he's been the friends of prime ministers and presidents and queens, our queen, and nothing affected him. He remained faithful to his calling. And I find that really stupendous because in the end, you know, whatever they, what they do is true for all of us, should be true for all of us. If you're going to be a, a milkman, commit yourself. And if I get on in life, it's because I was a really good milkman and they moved me up to something else. And it, it can be true for all of us. We find something to do that you commit yourself to and stick with it and trust it. And that, so that's why I choose them. So here's question number 13 on 20 Questions with Cliff Richard. And you've traveled. We've talked about a couple of places already. If you could tell me just one place on the planet that I must visit, where would that be? Oh, it would be. it would depend. You know... I would say if you had to go, if you could only go somewhere, I would say go to Sydney, Australia. It's just a fantastic city built on 25 bays. It's not just a city, though. It's the Australians. I mean, I'm picking Sydney because I've always had a really great time there. I've toured all over the place. Um, and, and it's beautiful everywhere there. You can go into the desert, so you can go somewhere that's green and lush and has vines. But Sydney, I find a really exciting city. It's a long way away, of course, but there's a way of life there that you feel that Australians feel free. To me, that they're like a cross between us Brits, who are not that outgoing, and the Americans, who are absolutely outgoing. And they're smack in the middle, I think, of the two yeah, of us. Yeah. So there's a great feeling out there, and I always feel comfortable in their presence. And they know how to, and they're not ashamed of enjoying themselves. No, the Australians, are all, they're all like that. Mm. Not just Sydney, but I'm, you take one place. I'm, I'm just yeah, picking Sydney. Yeah, yeah, Sydney. Here's number 14. If you met the 18-year-old you, what would you think and what would you say? Can you think that? Well, again, if I met him, if... I, he would have to come and meet me, and so therefore I would be in this position, and he'd come to me, and I'd say, I give up. <laughs> I'd say, give up. No. I would, because there was something... I don't, but I'm, no, I'm obviously wrong, because I did make it. But And I've talked about this before. When I see some of those early clips of Oh Boy, um, I see Marty Wilde and I and Dickie Pride sang a song called Three Cool Cats. Three cool cats. We were there trying to look cool. Coasters did it, didn't they, originally? Uh, yeah, it was theirs, yeah. Now, 
Marty just looked so cool. And then, then there were these two kind of greasy slobs each side of him. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, how did I, how did I survive that? I, I, to me, I looked amateur. And even when I listened to my first records, I thought, okay, move it was special. That was definitely a one-off. But sometimes I think I just sounded so young and immature and, and lacking in confidence. And that, that's, to me, what made the changes. As the success came, I felt more confident. And therefore, I started to sing out a bit more and be a bit more daring. Yeah. So you'd say to that 18-year-old Cliff Richard, Give up. Just, no, be a bit more confident. Just, <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah. If, yeah, if I wasn't allowed to say give up, I, I would say you're going to have to really work hard at this and try and sound like you, you know what you're talking about. But you did, and it happened. <laughs> <laughs> so another track, please, Cliff. Well, this track... Um, Again, my the album, the the rock and roll songbook album is to me. It's it's difficult to pick songs that I think are the best on it because I bought them all for a start, and and they're all fabulous songs. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been iconic. But Brian Highlands' "Sealed with a Kiss" to me is definitely an iconic pop rock ballad, and um, it was all the more surprising because his his first record was. She wears an itsy witsy teeny weeny yellow book, a dot bikini, and I thought, mm-hmm. then suddenly this record came out. So I just I was determined that I should have it on the album. And again, I phoned through the introduction to the Little Richard song. I was on the phone to my arranger, and I played him down, little little down, and I, so we created another intro. And it just set the song up for me to sing, and uh, and I'm thrilled because it now sounds like my record. And it's sealed with a kiss. Here's number 15 to Cliff Richard. What's the best thing about being older and wiser? Well, this is the old saying. I wish I was, uh, young, if I was younger and knew what I knew now, that's always going to be the case. That somehow or another, although I don't want to be younger, to, to be honest with you, again, being blessed with good health has been fantastic for me. And people always say, wouldn't you like to start all over again? I said, no, I don't want to start all over again. I've already had the best parts of our, our industry. I don't know whether... We talked about it cyclical. Will it ever come back that you'll sell millions and millions of records? I don't know that it will, but it might do. But at the moment, I'm thinking, I've had the best of that. I've sold in excess. They keep saying I've sold 250 million records, but that, that figure was got to 30 years ago when they checked out how much I'd sold around the planet. And so I got to have sold five million more <laughs> since then. So... so it, th- those were wonderful days, and I've lived through that. But so, what's the question again? Well, what's the best thing about being older and wiser? Oh, it really? means that I can now look back and say, "Oh my God, I did that. Yeah. That's happened to me." And also, by being older, you're and you are definitely wiser if you're older because you've been through everything. You've experienced all sorts of emotional you about things, perhaps. More secure? You're more secure because you know where you are. But, of course, I'm speaking from a point of view of a guy that didn't expect to survive and has, and not just for a few years. It's 55 years now. And a lot of men I meet, you know, on an aeroplane, you talk to people, and they, I say, what, they say, oh, I, oh, no, I'm retired. I say, well, how old are you? They say, 47. I'm thinking, oh, 47, 50, they retire. They don't have to, but I suppose they feel, okay, I can do it. I retire. Me, here I am at 73, and I, I'm not sure that I, retire is not really in my vocabulary. But what I, what I want to do sometimes is just stop. And so, therefore, in the future, I might try and figure out how I can just stop 
and then start whenever I want again. Ah, yeah, because you must have the ambition to start again yeah, or I do it again. If I say I retire, I'd have to come back out of retirement. Yeah. And I don't want to come back. I'd rather just stop, and maybe two years later, I'll phone up the my office and say, listen, um, I want to build a new extension. How much? How many concerts can I do <laughs> to earn the money to make that? Then I can have fun, because I, I do like, rec- I mean, recording is fabulous. Going live is so, so much fun. Is that the biggest buzz, the live? No, I think the most pleasurable and the most pleasing part of the industry for me has been recording because that's the beginnings of all the creativity. You start there and even when I'm recording, like Rip It Up on the new album, I'm thinking, how can I do this? Oh, I know the right choreographer. Uh, And I get him in eventually. But I start thinking of how I'm going to do bam, bam, bam. So it starts in the studio and then, of course... You can never quite uh, compete with that feeling that you get when you go out on the stage and you know that these people have come out on maybe a really duff night. They may be missing Downton Abbey (laughs) (laughs) and they've come to see you and their response, of course, is second to nothing. It's just just fantastic. So the two go together. Very loyal fan base too. Yeah, I do have a very, very, I don't know whether we're unique, but but certainly they're, they're, they're strong. Yeah, yeah. That's, that must be lovely for you. It's it is. Great it's support, a great feeling. It? Yeah. And to have sing, to to start a song, you know, as soon as the young one starts, <laughs> they're, they're there. <laughs> I haven't even started singing and they're already there. <laughs> they're there. Fantastic. Here's number 16. I wonder if this has ever happened to you. When were you starstruck? Have you ever been starstruck? I don't think I... Well, if you talk about Elvis, there was a time when I'd love to have met him. And I guess I'm never quite starstruck is when you're besotted by someone. My sister was besotted. My sister Donna was besotted by Elvis. Me, I just wanted to be like him. I loved what he did. I loved the way he looked. And if I could get a photograph with my lip curled the right way, <laughs> I was just made up. Mm. Um, but to me, starstruck, to me, is starstruck. I wouldn't be running around trying to have a photograph taken with Elvis. No. You no. know, and I'm not starstruck in that respect. And I've, and having said that, I'll say that one of my big disappointments is when I got a chance to be photographed with Elvis, you know what I did? I said to this journalist who knew him, can we wait till he's lost weight? Oh. He, you know, he went through that period where he was really yes, overweight. it wasn't good. And, and he was, was going to do another movie, I think. Um, he always did movies and when he did the movies he used to go on a diet and suddenly it was Elvis the Elvis was the Elvis that we all knew and I thought if I'm going to have a photograph up on my wall in the kitchen I'd like it I'd like to be able to say to people look this is why I started yeah now I, I say to people if you get a chance to have a photograph taken with someone like me for instance and I'm fat come anyway (laughs) i miss it i I thought that was the most stupid thing i've ever done here's number 17 it's a complete day off just to yourself what are you going to do well it might be a book my day off starts the night before don't set the alarm that's a psychological thing when i go to bed and i don't set the alarm i think it's fantastic now i may not sleep late but the chances are if i'm if i'm if i'm sleeping well i'm not sleeping well at the moment i think there's jet lag how long do you sleep for normally well i on tour i i try to stay in bed for definitely eight hours if i can actually sleep for seven of those hours it's fantastic and every now and then i i if if like you're talking about this kind of day off i might stay in bed till if I go to bed at midnight, say, because the chances are on, on, an, on a day, day off the night before, I definitely watch a film. Yeah. If, 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 if there's one on and it finishes at one, I'll say, yeah, okay, I got the day off. So I don't set the alarm. And if I did watch a movie till one, the chances are I wouldn't get out of bed till at least 11. I'd just stay there and yeah. just wallow in it. And then on a perfect day off, I would go and play some tennis. 
Um, that would get me through lunch where I wouldn't have to eat too big a lunch. I have a light lunch. Um, and then perfect, I'd like to go and see a movie. And what, ha- what are your favorite movies? What sort of movie might you watch? Oh, well, I mean, various, but... but uh, Gladiator is probably one of my favorite movies. Have you ever seen Groundhog Day? Yes. Stuff yes, like that gets yes. me. So, another piece of music. What are we going to have? I don't think that there's been a single new band in the last 50 years who hasn't played in a bar or a pub somewhere who didn't do Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good. It's just because it's a singer duetting with a guitarist. That's basically it. Although Chuck played his own guitar. When I did the record in Nashville, we discovered, though, well, the musicians discovered, we played Chuck Berry's record. And we said, this is it. And I said, we can't can't mess with the guitar. It's pretty well got to be like this. And then they played the introduction. And one of them said, wait a minute, that's two guitars, though. I said, no, it's not. He said, yes, it is. We played it again. And we dissected it. Sure enough. That's played by another guitar. You can just hear the gap and the change of sound. And so we did it that way. I have two guitarists. The, my producer plays fabulous guitar. So the lead guitarist played, and, the, and the, my producer took over. So I can understand why Chuck Berry's record is always sung by new bands and old bands too. Here's number 18. Uh, Cliff Richard, if you could live a year of your life again, which year would it be? Oh, it would have to be in those early years. There's so many good years I've had. But if I was going to live it again, I'd love to go back and have that that year where we went to Norrie Paramore's for an audition. The Ian Samuel happened on the bus to write, move it. We played it for in the audition. It got us our contract. We did the studio stuff, did move it, and it was number two by... October the 14th, 1958. So, that be so I would go back to 58 and okay. just live that again. Yeah, it was fantastic. It, it was so unbelievable. That's why it was fantastic. Number 19, what does the future hold? Well, we have this new album. Yeah, it's hard to look into the future. I've never been able to look too far into the future, although, you know, uh, it's a little bit easier for me to say, oh, I think next year I'd like to do this, because the chances are it's not going to end for me now. Not next year, anyway. It could fade away still, but... The chances are it won't. So for me at the moment, I'm just planning on uh, a volume two. If this album sells well enough for the record company to have made money and for me to have made some money uh, and have enough money to make another album, I can't wait to get back to Nashville. I'll pick, if I can get the same five musicians, I would, and, and just do another, get volume two. Finally, number 20, what's your motto, Cliff Richard? Oh, dear, I don't know. I could make up a motto. My dad always, when my dad first asked me about my career, he said, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, yeah. He said, well, how much do you like it? I said, I love it. I love it. I'd love to do it. And he said, well, then do it, but do it good and keep on doing it good. So, I mean, if that could be a motto, then that's what it would be. Cliff Richard, thank you very much indeed. (laughs) Thank you. Sir Cliff Richard. After the interview, we went for a drink in a London pub. Quite surreal, having a drink in a pub, in public, with Sir Cliff Richard. Everyone in the pub knew exactly who he was. And I guess Cliff knew that they all knew as well. But he was very relaxed about it, and we had a lovely chat, and uh, a nice glass of white. (laughs) 